0: This is the interview edition with Joseph Richardson, a dedicated addiction counselor based in Texas. Joe founded a nonprofit foundation aimed at supporting men on their journey to overcome drug and alcohol addiction. Bringing over a decade of experience in the mental health field, he has been a guiding light for countless individuals. For the past eight years, Joe has also lived with distinction as a director of residential services, creating a safe and nurturing environment for those seeking to rebuild their lives. We're delving into Joe's insights, experiences, and the impactful work he continues to do in the realm of addiction recovery. Welcome to Shrink in the Box. How may I take your disorder?
1: It started off with with an addiction, actually. You know, it it started off with me. I had an addiction for 17 years that I could not get out of myself. Okay. And uh, getting out of that and the people that, that were really impactful in my life, man, that helped me, made a big impact on my life. And then getting to the point, man, where I just wanted to give back. And to me, when I looked at it, going to school and becoming a counselor was just the fastest track for me where I could actually give back and help other people that were in the same position I was. So it seemed like a way, a way for me to give back and to continue my recovery and help others. And it's panned out. It's panned out pretty good. Um, yeah. Okay. Wow. All right. 17 years. 17 years. That's a long time, man. Yeah, man. I started smoking weed at 13, um, and then it progressed pretty quick to every day. And then it wasn't long, man, until I got exactly what I wanted. So mm-hmm. yeah, 17 years, I didn't quit till I was 30. Uh, there was different times where I was in jail. When I wasn't using, but beyond that, man, it was uh pretty pretty extensive.
0: Okay, all yeah. right. So when you were when you were basically all the time that you were sober is when you like had to be. Absolutely,
1: where well, I was forced. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. And yeah. So you quit. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say that it it, the, it wasn't it wasn't a uh, um it wasn't necessarily a goal of mine to be sober. Like I didn't like the way I felt sober. So the mm-hmm. goal of mine was to stay high. And so it, you know throughout the years it would tr- it would you know, change from different different types of substances. But the thought of me even living or being sober was terrifying to me. I didn't like the way I felt sober. Sure. So the goal was never to be sober until it got too much for me. Wow. Yeah. Okay.
0: All right. And so you said you quit at 30? 30. How old are you now? I am 41. I'll be 42 next month. Almost 12 years. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Good deal. So... <clears throat> What uh, you work in the addiction field, right? Mm-hmm. The addiction counseling field. What, what population do you primarily work with?
1: So right now, um, anybody who has an addiction will I'll work with the counseling center that I'm working with right now. There's a lot of veterans, uh, combat veterans, uh, but really anybody who has an addiction. Um, there's no um, prejudice there. I can I can pretty much handle any of that. So sure, sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, do
0: you work with the court system at all?
1: I do. So right now we do a uh, vet court. So uh, the, the place I work for as a contract over the vet court, it's probation, it's strict probation for uh, veterans. Uh, it's a really good deal for them that they come in there and they, uh, as long as they adhere to the treatment and they adhere to the probation requirements, they actually get off of their charge. So it's really good deal uh, for guys to, to have a second chance and to be able to accomplish something that doesn't go permanently on their record and ruin any future stuff that they have. Wow. Yeah. That's
0: quite the opportunity. Mm-hmm. So, the veterans in our county get get to get the care they need and they also get second chances. Yeah, absolutely. And and not only just from one area, they get
1: uh, care from a probation officer, which is uh, overseeing them. Then they have counseling and they also have uh, the VA for the medical side of it and the psychi- psychiatric side of it also. So it's like three ways all the way around uh, helping these veterans
0: out. That's pretty extensive program. A, yeah, that's yeah. pretty cool. That's yeah. really cool, actually. Yeah. Okay. So in your experience, what, what would you say is maybe or what would you say are maybe some issues that are specifically prominent in the veteran population? Things that you see in your practice? You know, I, I don't
1: know. I think that, you know, to deal with veterans was kind of a, a culture shock for me. Cause, you know, before getting into uh, you know, the license counseling, I was a program director for a, a residential facility. So I've dealt with addiction for years before I got to be an actual counselor. Um, and so I was pretty, uh, pretty well-versed in the, just, the, just the, the general, I guess, addict, if that's how you want to call it. And then getting over to starting to deal with combat veterans, um, it was a little bit intimidating and I didn't know what, what, what to really think. And um, it wasn't too long before starting to work with veterans that I realized that they're, they're just like everybody else as far as addicts. Uh, they have a substance use disorder. They have an alcohol use disorder. I think the one thing that surprised me the most is, you know, the the main emphasis was dealing with the, the the combat trauma or the trauma that these men went through in their service. And i was surprised at how many of them had trauma actually before the service. Right. A, a lot of it was yeah. childhood stuff that they carried through and the service just kind of added on to it. Um, that was a little bit more surprising to me than what I thought. Sure. Yeah, yeah, that makes
0: sense. Well, and I think that that's interesting, too, because it seems like, um, you know, because I worked with you for a little while at where, mm-hmm. where you're at now and, and uh, worked with the veterans for like four years. And, and it seems like that the military almost attracted uh, a, a certain kind of person, like yeah. like broken men. You know what yeah. I mean? Guys looking for a way out. Right. Yeah. You
1: come from yep. a home and, and you're not
0: getting what you need there. 18.
1: It's like, what do I want to do. Well, there's the military that promise you college and promise you something. And for a lot of people, it is a way out. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. it absolutely
0: is. Interesting. Okay. yeah, Okay. Do you like your job? Don't ask me that right now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I like helping people. Let me put it that way. Yeah. I love helping people. Um, I, I don't mind doing it um, the way that I do it right now. But I, I like... Um, I know that sounds kind of bad, but I, I I like helping people, and the counseling is where I'm at right now and how I'm doing it, um so i'm I'm okay with it. okay, okay. I love helping people. Let me just put it that way, and it it doesn't matter in what capacity right now it's counseling, so
0: I see okay. Yeah. so now, when you say right now it's counseling, do you have other passions that you're pursuing as well?
1: Oh, yeah, you know i I definitely like I said, for the rest of my life, I'm going to be helping people um i've I've already resolved myself to that, and that's something that um, I feel like I can give back. You know, the, there's definitely, uh, my addiction wasn't a light one. And so I can, you know, if I sit across from somebody who's down in the dumps and they're really hating themselves and they can't pull their life together, I, I know what they're going through. And I can literally say, hey, like I've been there. I know what you're going through. And not only that, I know a way out. And so that's that's been something that I feel like my experience of what I've been through, I want to be able to give back. And so Um, my future plans are maybe doing it on a larger scale than just uh, one-on-one individual counseling. Uh, You know, me and my wife have plans on moving to Tennessee and actually open up a residential facility uh, for men that struggle with drug and alcohol addiction. And we're going to start kind of small with like eight or nine beds and eventually grow. I'm hoping to around 20, 25 beds at a time. And, you know, with that number, I don't want to lose... The intimate space of growing together, um, and I don't want it to be become so big that it turns into one of these revolving door recovery places. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a balance in there, and I'm looking forward to to seeing that work itself out, figuring that out.
0: That's awesome.
1: But yeah, that's that's definitely the future plan, and it's we should be going there this year. Uh, we've got a lot of stuff lining up going there this year to make it happen. So
0: good deal, man. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right so i want to circle back around to something that you said at the beginning you said that you'd been sober 12 years mm-hmm. how do you feel like that you've managed that how do, how do you feel like you have managed to put together that much time that's a long time that is a long You're time considering the relapse right
1: yeah that, that is a long time and i want to say this that you know I've, i was talking actually to somebody today that i've seen a lot of people over the past um 11 years 12 years that have relapsed themselves and for the most part when i look at it a lot of people they they check out man like, you know, you, your counselor, you know, we, they have the tools, they have the things necessary. They just don't utilize them and things get hard, man. And they end up checking out. Um, you know, the reason I have as much time as I do right now is because I had people around me helping me and I definitely used them when I needed to. I've definitely had people in my life where I felt like the bottom was falling out of it and things were falling apart. I can call and lean on. And they were, I had a solid community around me that was ready to help me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that that's part of the motivation of being that for other people also is being the solid community for other people when they struggle too. Sure. Yeah. You know, the idea that you get off drugs and alcohol and things are just going to be roses and daisies, it just doesn't work like that. You're left with a lot of stuff. So. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. And you know the the um the relapse rate specifically for um Drugs like well, first of all your drug of choice was meth methamphetamine, right? methamphetamine. anything really. Yeah, okay Yeah, you had a preference of meth, but it preference was kind of a buffet thing. drug addict. Yeah. Yeah, okay A little bit of this a little bit of that. Everybody. Oh, that looks good. You know what I mean? Yeah, that thing. Yeah um, Okay, so the but the relapse rate um, Statistically for meth specifically right is 52.2% which is I mean, that's a lot. It's a lot right? yeah. So you're talking about over one out of every two people that enter treatment Mm-hmm. for for that drug specifically relapse so um that's uh man, that's those are some big numbers yeah. you know what i mean a- and with numbers like that i think we're always going to have job security mm-hmm. right but there's also a lot of <clears throat> recidivism people having to come back through and come back through mm-hmm. and uh that can be really frustrating right mm-hmm. so um you know, I'm interested on in hearing your opinion on on counselor burnout. AJ and I have talked about that yeah. extensively on some of our last ep on some of our past episodes, mm-hmm. and so I think that talking about counselor burnout would be something that I you know I'd like to hear your opinion on. Have you ever experienced that?
1: Yeah, I've experienced. I've come you know the the burnout that I have experienced was before actually getting into the individual counseling, and I was very young in my recovery and. Um, you know, part of my recovery was working and giving back, and so for me, it's like you know, you work sixty hours a week, and I lived at the residential place with the guys, and I was immersed with them all the time, and I didn't even recognize I was burnout until I took a four day vacation, and I took a four day vacation, and it started to wind down, and I started to slow down a little bit, and I looked around, and I was like, "Whoa, I'm stressed out here." Yeah. And so I had to go back and talk to the the owner of the facility and kind of readjust some things. You know, when I, when I started counseling at the Counseling Center I'm at now, uh, compassion fatigue was something that I was not aware of, I wasn't, I wasn't even prepared for. it. And I'd come home in and after giving everything at my job, I'd come home in, and I'd be exhausted and tired. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'd come home to a family and I had to have, I have a part of me to give to them and it just wasn't there. And I had to learn pretty quickly. And to say that I'm perfect at it, I don't know if I'm there, but I had to learn pretty quickly how to prioritize. It is isn't my work is important, and it is important to to help people that need help. But what if I do that and lose the position in my family? What if I do that and I come home and I have nothing to give my family? And so I've reoriented what's important. I, I've developed a, the things that that work for me as far as self care. Sure. You know, early on, my self care was just escape. Mm-hmm. I, I'd come home in and I'd watch Facebook reels or TV or I'd you know, veg out on the couch. I'm not really watching anything specific. I'm just getting my brain to just to turn to mush, to quit thinking about stuff. And that was not producing the results that I wanted in my marriage or Mm -hmm. in my family. Yeah. So I had to learn how to readjust from that, that there is a difference between escape, which escape is not a bad thing. We need time to escape and we need time to have things that help us um, decompress, but it can't always be escape.
0: No, I agree.
1: Yeah, exactly. And finding a way to use stress management techniques What's bothering me? How is it bothering me? And literally sitting down and organizing these things. Um, I've, I've had my wealth, my wife helped me out a lot in that area. Like we, we generally talk about our calendar and what what she's got going on, what I've got going on and how it's affecting both of us. Right. So definitely a learning process that, you know, experiencing burnout, you'll do it. If you do it once, you don't want to do it again. And so trying to guard against it. And it is a real thing. That's why when we go through school, a lot of it is talking about, you know, self care, self care, self
0: care. Yeah. No, I agree with that. And I, I think that <clears throat> burnout for a lot of therapists, I think it can be different depending on the person, but burnout for a lot of therapists kind of comes and goes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I've lost count of how many times I've felt burnt out. It's relatively short periods of time mm-hmm. that I start to really feel that way and then I can recognize it, like you said, being aware of it and having priorities in place and things like that and knowing when things need to shift yeah. has, helps from prolonging it. But, but it's something that, I mean, at least in my own experience, I experience, I would say, not frequently, but pretty often, You yeah. know, several times a year probably for a few days at a time. I'm like, Oh man, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? I became painfully aware that maybe I don't manage
1: my stress as, as good as I thought I did. Ooh. Yeah, I know. Right. That's Ooh, not as a counselor? Yeah. Hypocrite. I'm, well, seriously, <laughs> I'm jo- you know, I, I get it. No, seriously, yeah. you look up and you go, man, I'm doing all right. And then, you know, I realize that maybe I'm not handling stress as much as I, I yeah. as well as I think I am. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that that's the, the, the point is recognizing it and catching it before it goes too far. Because you, if you let burnout get to a point where you're ineffective, then you're not even doing what you're called to do. And then there's a, a bigger conflict there than even the burnout.
0: Sure. What do you think? Do you feel like that the, the veteran population and their specific needs contributes to your burnout? Because their suicide is 1.5 times the national mm-hmm. average. You know what I mean? So I think the last number that I looked at was 22 a day, 23 mm-hmm. a day, something mm-hmm. like that. Um, U.S. veterans committing suicide. Uh, I'm going to get that. I'm going to get that checked here. Yeah. I to make sure I got the number right. But because it changes, right? It shifts. Mm-hmm. But that's I mean, dude, that's a major problem. Mm-hmm. And I know that in my time when we worked together at the same place, um, we were losing a lot of guys, yeah, a lot, a lot of guys, you know, and it wasn't just to suicide. I mean, suicide was a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, I mean, in my own experience, like I know how it made me feel, right. But I kind of, obviously this is about you today. So I kind of want to hear what your thoughts on that are. Do you feel like the veteran population makes burnout more apparent than maybe it would be in other populations in your opinion? Um, I, I don't, I don't see
1: the veterans adding to what a regular client would do. Um. Like for me, the, the only additional thing that I see is exactly what you're talking about, the suicide thing. You know, I haven't, if I've ever thought of a client, you know, I got by myself and I thought, this may be one who takes his own life. Um, it's been a veteran and, you know, seeing uh, one of the things that I wasn't prepared for is the, the amount of suicide that's happening among the veterans. And so when that becomes a reality, um, I did have to take that in consideration. And then having the moments where it's like, man, if this, if this is to happen, can I sleep with that at night? Did I do the best that I could? And for me, it added a little bit of accountability, but I don't think the veteran population itself added more to any type of burnout. I mean, clients are hard. That's just, yeah, that's just how they are. That's and true. It, Especially with addiction, people lie and they, they manipulate and they try to get their own way because yeah. the, the, yeah. the disease is that strong. Um, and that's part of the, part of the, the process. And being okay with, I'm doing the best that I can with what they're giving me. You know, if they sit in front of you and they paint a picture that everything's hunky dory and it's really not, well, then what do you work with? You have to work with what they give you. You have
0: to go with what they, yeah, with what they with give Yeah, what they give you. you. Yeah. And so it's like you can honestly know that they're lying. Mm-hmm. And there's a time and place to confront that. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and you have to be careful not to do it too early because then it can, it can break the rapport. Yeah, yeah, it can break the rapport and, and cause um, a rift. In the relationship, right, the therapeutic relationship. So that's that's good. So the the statistics for 2022 um, were that 17 veterans a day were taking their own life. So honestly, it's gotten a little bit better. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But I think that that's because there's been a lot more awareness mm-hmm. around that in the more recent years. Like even the VA, which historically has contributed yeah. to a lot of veteran suicide, um, they I think they're starting to really take this seriously. Mostly because they have been so neglectful in the past, mm-hmm. you know, decades, and so for them to start moving towards trying to do more for veterans and preventing suicide, um, I think is a big step. It's yeah, a really big step. And I don't think the responsibility
1: falls so much on just the family anymore. You know, you a veteran that comes back from. Um, from being deployed and then just doesn't feel like they fit into with society. You know, before it would be just the family problem. The family has to deal with it. And what do they they know? They have no idea what to do. And so it becomes above their pay grade. And what I've seen is a lot more of other veterans stepping in. You know, these programs that help with PTSD or these residential programs have actually outreach places that do suicidal awareness. Like they have phone lines dedicated to these veterans that are in crisis that they can actually go in that moment to those things. And because it's not some national hotline, because it is another veteran on the the other side, people are a little bit more motivated to to reach out and to call. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've seen it even through social media. You know, through social media, a guy will uh, be ready to uh, do something maybe potentially stupid, and he'll post on social media kind of like his farewell thing. And I've seen a lot of people jump into action over that. And so there's a different community around the veteran instead of just the family and the responsibility being on the family. You know, you love somebody so much, you look at that you don't even want to have those thoughts going through your head. So it's almost not even fair for it just to be the family. And I think there is more stuff in place now than, and like you said, the awareness yeah. that that's, that's put this stuff in place more now than, than ever really.
0: No, I would agree with that. Yeah. I agree with that a hundred percent. And, and <clears throat> tell me what, are maybe in your opinion some of the other challenges with working in the counseling field? AJ and I have talked about this, right? Sure. But again, I want I want to hear your opinion. So
1: the calen- the challenges in the counseling field.
0: People, <laughs> I mean, well, other than people, yeah, because <laughs> the people are probably the biggest, right? I mean, there, but that's also the point.
1: Yeah, I, I think so, so. Yeah, I think for me, it's um, maybe even relapses. Uh, it's building a rapport with somebody and really kind of, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic, man, and, and I don't want yeah. that to change. I don't want to sit across from somebody and go, well, this guy doesn't have a chance. Yeah, if you're jaded, but, you better get out. Absolutely, and get man. Out. Yeah, and I, I, I truly believe that my clients can get the tools and they can be better in their life, and I've seen it time and time again. And then when you put that type of, uh, and we're, we're taught to be objective, and for the most part, I, I, do a really good, I do a really good job at that. But, you know, you, you draw close to somebody and then you see them relapse, and that one hurts the same way as it does year 1 as it does year 5 yeah uh, you you yeah. see somebody to to self destruct and like for the life of me I look at that and I'm like you don't even have to do that like you, you know you were doing so good and then here comes this and um I think that that's probably the hardest thing one of the most challenging things about counseling
0: okay yeah no that makes a lot of sense and <clears throat> and, and when you talk about relapse being something that's I noticed that like, you know, the first main population that I worked with was mm-hmm. the veterans. Mm-hmm. Um, now I work with the drug court and the DWI court, different, completely different population, mm-hmm. same problems, mm-hmm. right? It, it's all, it's, I wouldn't even say it's like the legal or court system population versus veterans. I would just say that they all fall into the same umbrella as, a, as addiction population mm-hmm. and the relapses are always hard. Mm -hmm. And, um, you and I have had these conversations in the past about how sometimes that's really hard not to take personal, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? When you invest so much time into somebody Mm -hmm. and, and you love on them and you're invested in their story and what they're doing. And then they just twist off. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's
1: hard. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's part of being genuine with somebody and you sit across from somebody and you tell them, I I genuinely care about you and your future, um, I mean, those feelings are real. And, and, you know, we're not robots. We care about our clients. And for them to uh, relapse or even, you know, do things that they knew that they shouldn't do and it caused a uh, self-destruction in, in their own life, that's, that's hard to deal with. It's hard to look at. Um, I, I'm very thankful that uh, I get to be with them along with the journey. Uh, and I'm also thankful at the end of the day that I can separate from it also that even in the moment where I may have those emotions or have those feelings, they don't last forever. I can't separate and I do get to go home uh, to my family. You know? Right,
0: right. And, and, and you know, this is something that I wanted the listeners to hear too, because I know, I've known you for a little while. We're, mm-hmm. really, we're really close, we're good friends. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that I've always really admired about you um, and that I love about you as a counselor and as a person is exactly what you were talking about a while ago is that you refuse to be jaded. Yeah. It's really easy to become jaded in this field.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Really isn't it is it not? No it is and while you're saying that I'm
1: I'm kind of trying to to hide back even thoughts of selfishness because I don't want to be jaded because I don't want to be miserable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you no know, it's it's not yeah. it's not yeah, yeah, this yeah, altruistic Uh, experience the whole time. I mean, I do part of me is like, I know what the, the misery is. I don't want my, I don't want me coming to work to be a nine to five where I'm miserable.
0: Well, because then it becomes just like any other job that we've had in the past that we hated. Absolutely. You wake up in the morning and you're like, Oh, you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to do this today. That sucks. Yeah. Like that, that sucks. And so, but you and I both have encountered so many other professionals that have done just that. Oh yeah, that have have let the um, the low success rate, especially mm-hmm. with the, you know counseling in general for the most part, but especially the addiction population, a mm-hmm. low success rate get to a point where somebody sits in front of them and they're like, "Well, you're going to relapse just like the rest of them," mm-hmm. and it's like, "Okay, well, if if that's the way a counselor genuinely feels, they need to get out."
1: Yeah, absolutely, I agree with that completely.
0: Right? And yeah. So,
1: well, where's the other person going to draw the hope from? Where that we're yeah, where, not? Where, yeah, exactly. Right? It's that.
0: Counselors you know, are supposed to model.
1: Exactly. And when they're, when they're in chaos or they're having chaotic thoughts or feelings or emotions, we need to be the unanxious source. And I, I mean, if somebody looks at me and goes, you know, I really feel like I'm going to relapse. And I'm like, well, you probably are. I mean, that's horrible <laughs> counseling, right? Yeah. That'll I mean, be $50. Exactly. <laughs> and, and listen, when you do relapse, come back. I'll help you then, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's That'd be horrible. another $50. Exactly. That's, that? that's horrible. They have to be able to draw it from somebody. Yeah. And if we become jaded and, and not optimistic or become pessimistic in our idea of, of what they're capable of, what are we doing?
0: Yeah. You know? And we're just like everybody else in their life, too. Yeah. I, yeah, that's a good point. That's a great yeah. point. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, because everybody else in their life is like, well, we'll see. Yeah, here we go again. Yeah. Right? Yeah, as well, I mean, I'm sure that was that was the way it was in your family. And <clears> my family it was the same way. I said, I'm sober. They're like, <laughs> OK, yeah. well, then we're not going to hold our breath, Jonathan. Yeah. You know what
1: I mean? No, I'm, I'm thankful that I like I said earlier, that I had people who helped me and, and so into my life. I was I was way above my family's pay grade. I was the first um, like true addict in my immediate family. Um, and so they didn't they had no idea what to do with me. Yeah. And so the enabling, they didn't even know that they were enabling. And, you know, when I, um, I remember, th- you know, Thanksgiving's and Christmases, um, you know, you know, people come around and their families reuniting and talking and it's like, well, what's Joe doing? Well, he's doing the same thing. he was last year, man. I wish he would get it well. And I wish he'd get it right. And it's like, you know, what are you supposed to do with that? You know what I mean? It's like, they don't, they don't get it. They don't understand. Like in their mind, it's like, you know, and this is a product, part of the problem that I had. It's like their answer for me and what I was going through was just stop. and it's like. You don't get it. I hated that. <laughs> it's like, Ugh. you think I like what I'm doing? Like, I hate waking up and hating myself in the morning. Yeah. Like, that's just where I am right now. Yeah. And I was way above their pay grade. And so they did. They just had no idea what to do with me.
0: I'm with you on that. And and, and I think talking there's I have a question for you that I want to come back to. But while we're talking about our own personal experiences, mm-hmm. I kind of want to come into this for a minute. Um crazy addiction stories with our families and whatever else right like sure. not not to not to, com- not to completely just blow all this you know and blow our professionalism and talk about all the crazy crap that we did but just some of the things that <clears throat> we talk like some of the things that happened some of the things that um we put our family through right you talk about our you talk about your your family looking at you and going joe just like stop and you're like, well, why didn't I think about that? Yeah, <laughs> right, <laughs> you know? exactly. I thought it was so easy, right? Yeah. It was just, uh, you know, never crossed my mind. Yeah, you know, and, and I, you know, I remember my dad being beside himself and, and uh, I would burn people for money yeah. or jewelry or something, you know. Sometimes it'd be people that I knew and then they'd come knocking on the door and my dad's coming to the door, like, where's Jonathan? And he's like, uh oh. Um, yeah. Trying to protect me, you know what I mean. But like, I look back on that now and I cringe because I'm like, "Good Lord, man!" Like, you know, it's really easy to get in that selfish mindset when we're living in addiction. We're like, "I'm not hurting anybody else but me." I know mm-hmm. that, and that's could not be further from the truth.
1: Yeah, you know what I mean. You no, know, that's my biggest regret. You know, when I look back, I, I didn't, I wasn't aware, nor did I want to be aware of who all I was hurting. Like, I still had this underlying thing of, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, that's bad." but I still have some level of control over it. And after getting sober, I look back and it's like, no, man, I hurt a lot of people. And that's the part that if there's any regret, that would be it. You know, the stuff I did is the stuff I did. You know, I wasn't, I was in, I was an addict. I was in my, I wasn't in my right mind, you know? And you know, when I look back, I don't really, you know, I feel bad for the people that I hurt hurt in that area. But what I did is what I did. But the people I hurt, that's, that's the part that like, I don't want to do that moving forward. Yeah, like moving forward, it's like that. I don't want to hurt anybody anymore. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's that's definitely one of the regrets from the past.
0: No, I understand that. I do. I, I'm reminded. I don't know why I thought about this specifically, right? Because there's a million stories I could tell, but I'm reminded when you're talking about that of. My dad was always disappointed. <laughs> and The <laughs> decisions that I made, you know what I mean. Like, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. I'd rather you hit me in the <laughs> mouth. If I'm being, I mean, honestly, I'd rather you punch me square in the face yeah, than right. my dad look me in the face. But he did. But this is this is the point. This was a tipping point for me because I was going around Home Depots all over the, the North Texas, yeah. like DFW area, and I was walking in with a, a, a box cutters in my pocket, cutting the security tags off of like expensive tools, like Milwaukee and Makita saws, saw, sawzalls, and and you know, um, you better check the statute limitations. Oh no, no, oh, I've okay. I've already been to jail for all that. <laughs> okay, okay? Good. yes. So I'm um, no shame, right? I mean, well, there is shame, but not now. It is right. what it is. But um, and I was walking out with expensive power tools, right? Mm-hmm. Drill sets and impacts and things like that. And uh, I was like, oh man, I'm so slick, right? Oh, like yeah. people can't catch me, bro. I've been doing this for a minute. Well, I went into a one and I went into a Home Depot. I would go to different Home Depots. I didn't want to be like a frequent flyer walking out with these $300 saws. Mm -hmm. And so I went to one over way over in West Fort Worth one day. And uh, I did the same thing I always did, right? Because I was taking them and pawning them and getting cash for them. So I did the same thing I always did. I cut the security tag off, walked out the garden center like I normally do. And these two dudes, I mean, were like, they were coming from the other entrance, Mm -hmm. but they were just booking it, bro, towards me. And I was like, and so I I didn't get very far, right? Yeah. They tackled me and they put me in zip tie handcuffs mm-hmm. and these people were in plain clothes. I'm like, am I getting kidnapped? Like, yeah, you know right. what I mean? Like what's happening? And they were like, we're with Home Depot's loss prevention. And you know, we've been watching you for like six weeks and I'm like, what? So why'd you let me get away with it for so long? Yeah. You know what I mean? So anyway, they, they walked me back. They decided to not press charges on me for all the other crap that I'd stolen from other stores. They just pressed me for that one, but it was enough to put me in jail. And I, I tell that story because every, everything up to that point was just like, oh, it ain't no big deal. Mm-hmm. Oh, it ain't no big deal. But I called my dad when I went to jail that time, and I said, I'm in jail. And he just went, oh, when's it going to stop? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, and, and and the reality of it is is, um. That wasn't the first time we'd have a, we'd had a conversation like that, but for some reason it clicked for me in that moment that I am I'm gonna put my dad and I'm gonna put my family right my dad especially in an early grave. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, and, and it I for that was the moment where I realized like to the fullest extent that I could realize that I was hurting people that I cared about. Yeah. You know what I mean? The crisis of belief. It, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Up to that point, man, I was like, I brushed everything off. Not a big deal. Not a big, no, no, they're fine. They'll get over it, whatever. But that was that moment was like, when's it going to stop, man? Like, I'm so over this. I don't know what to do with you. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? He, and so he's like, I love you, but I'm not coming to get you. Like, yeah. he was like, you're better. You're safer in there. He's, mm-hmm. you won't die in there. And, and I was like, whew, man, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so when you think about. Stuff like that, um, I think that looking back on it, hindsight being twenty twenty, you can you can really pull from that. Like you said, I never want to do that again, mm-hmm. ever. And when you when you feel that way to the extent that you and I are talking about feeling that way, our recovery becomes an unwavering like I'm not compromising. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's where people relapse. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I do. Compromising.
1: Yeah, I, I think that, you know, toying with uh, the idea or any kind of indulgence in old fantasies or things that you think that, you know, you got away with it or you got some control over it, we have no control. And a lot of times you even see people today, they think that they're fooling people, you're not. And, you know, we just thought we were fooling people. We really weren't, yeah, you know. Knew. They knew. I, I've I've, lo- I've noticed over the years that when I look at my addiction, man, to me, it was a, a relationship uh, with with my drug of choice. And I had a client one time that he um, he told me, you know, he'd go home every day and on the way home, he would stop by the liquor store and he'd go inside and he'd try to drink his bottle in peace. Well, his wife would start nagging at him. And he said, man, I just couldn't handle it. So I'd go out there and I'd sit in the truck. And he said, Joe, what kind of man would rather sit in the truck by himself than be at home with his wife? And I said, well, you weren't in the truck by yourself. You were with your best friend. You, you were with I mean, you were with a bottle of alcohol. You don't need anything else. And, you know, talking to him that day, it started to wrap my mind around the relationship that I had with my, with my drug, with my substance. And, you know, it is a relationship, man. And it's there for you when you need it. And, you know, when you're down, you know, you, you know back then it's like, hey, I mean, I'm having an argument with my, with my girlfriend or, or my mom got sick or I'm sick. Okay, well, let, let's go have some beer. Let's go do this. And it's like, we use it for all different kinds of stuff. And so it's been there for a lot of things that we've needed it for but now it's trying to kill you. And I think that that's the part where the, the page turns for me. And it's like, you know, you have been there and I did need you when I went through a lot of stuff. And there was times where, you know, the, the drug did what it was supposed to. I was stressed out, I'd wanna deal with life and I'd get high and it would go away. And so it had the value it had the, the immediate effect that I wanted it to, but now it's trying to kill me. And I have to look out for that. It's like being around your best friend that has a knife, that has a knife behind their back and they're waiting for you to slip. And I have to view my addiction that way. Like when I think back at, you know, the, the old saying, like my, my worst day sober is better than my best day getting high. Bullshit. It's so crazy. Like yeah. I had like to think that I, I didn't have any good, time. I had some great times. I was, I was getting high, like. Well, that's, that's the whole the, allure of it. Exactly, right? Yeah. right? And, you wouldn't and, miss it if it all sucked. Exactly, and, yeah. and it's like, no, no, those were good times. And like, I don't even discount that part of my life. I don't wanna lie to myself and act like there weren't some good times. The problem is, is the, the consequences. It's not that the, the, you know, the effect of the drugs are always going to work. Nobody quits because the drugs quit working. You know, People get sober because the consequences get too much. And when, when I view the consequences of my relationship with methamphetamine, it's like, well, this thing made me feel good and it got me um, other people around me and the, the people that I wanted to be. But now this thing's trying to kill me and I have to watch out for that. And so that's that. Bit that put a whole different accountability on what my addiction wants to do in my life. It literally wants to take everything from me, and I have to view it that way because that is the truth. There's no moderation. Like when I use, I give everything to this thing, and it just doesn't work out for me.
0: Agreed, and I, I love the way that you put that too, right? Because I I would agree with that a hundred percent. Like. When you when you really when we develop addictions and I'll just use myself not everybody right but sure. when, but when most of us develop addictions it it is it's it's an abusive relate it's like being in a relationship with a sociopathic narcissist <laughs> it's you know, toxic man you know what I mean I mean because it's like oh I'm there for you when you need me but also I secretly hope you fail <laughs> right I'm waiting for you to slip so I can stick the knife in your back and take everything that you love and care about you know what I mean. Um, but if you need me, I'm here. Yeah. It's right? it's a it's, if a person did that to another person, it's sick, it's abusive. But people do it every day when they inject, when they drink, when mm-hmm. they smoke, right? And, and it's and people were just overlooking it. it yeah. and, but if it was domestic violence, we would be, there'd be people in the streets. Yeah. No, no, you know what I mean? You see what I'm saying? No, I, I do
1: absolutely. And you look at it's such a toxic relationship because the 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 comfort is there. Like I said, you get the response from the drug that you want. Um, but there's also the, the, I want every bit of your attention, I want everybody your time, I want everybody your money, I want all your effort, like it's such a, an overbearing thing. And you think about the, the, the obsessive thoughts that come with it, like try to have a clear, a clear thought about anything. When you when you are jonesing for something, nope, there's no clear thought. Nope. You're caught in this obsessive loop, li- and it's because the i to additional- rob a liquor
0: store. Exactly, <laughs> that's the clearest thought well, I've had. We were talking about heroin. this the other
1: day. I want to I want to rob a pharmacy. It's so stupid, but why does it become a real thought, right? Yeah,
0: where I'm like, I, I drive by a CBS and I do a double take. I'm like, should I? Uh, you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. And that's wild, bro. It is. I'm not. I didn't get raised. I wasn't raised that way. And yeah, were you? I'm absolutely. sure. Absolutely. Well, you and you, like like I
1: was saying, you look at like what it wants. From you. It wants every bit of who you are. Yes. Time, effort, yeah. energy, everything. Yep. And that's a toxic relationship. Yep. You know that if you're looking at it as a relationship, that is not healthy. There's no healthy boundaries, no healthy limits. It's all consuming.
0: Yep. And and here's the thing, there's a lot of, there's even more parallels. It, when when people try to leave abusive relationships, that's when they tend to get their worst. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's another parallel that's right alongside everything else that you're saying is that when we try to get sober, it's like, oh, man, our addictions are are, are working against us the hardest at that mm-hmm. point. Like, you're not going to leave me. You're yeah. not going to leave me. Right. Yeah. So it, it's, it's just...
1: like you don't want any chocolate cake until you want to go on a diet. And then the chocolate cake becomes very alluring. Hey.
0: <laughs> Eat me. Right. You know what I mean? That was creepy. That was a little bit weird. I know, but I I wanted it to be. I'm not sorry. So there's, but you're right though, right? I mean, there's, there's so many parallels to that of like when, well, I mean, I've worked with people that are trying to leave abusive relationships and when they finally set those boundaries with their partners and they say, I've had enough, I'm leaving, I'm not doing this anymore. Then the partner realizing they're losing control freaks out, Mm -hmm. Right. And, and that's when our addictions come at us the most. Yeah. So I, I have another question for you too, kind of going back to the, the counseling aspect of this. Sure. Um, I, I want to say this real quick before
1: sure, we move on ahead. from this. I, I, it's been very uh, helpful to, to show my clients the relationship, like making it into a relationship where they can understand it better because the illusion of some type of control that, you know, I, I can control this. It's not that big of a deal, even though, you know, it's bad. Uh, how much can you control your wife? How much can you control your partner? You don't have really a lot of control over it. Realistically, them. almost yeah. zero. Exactly. And yeah. that, it's the same point when you look at, uh, when I try to get my clients to look at their addiction as a relationship and not to negate the times that it was there and it was doing what they asked it to, but now it's just turned toxic and it's time to get out. And and it kind of blows out, out of the water, the actual, you have no control over it. As much as you think you do it, you just don't. Yeah.
0: No, I would agree with that. I absolutely would. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, so what would you say it has been the hardest story or experience that you've had in your time as a counselor?
1: The first guy that I was close to that died, that one was a little bit tough for me. Okay. Um, and, you know, that wasn't necessarily I know you're talking about, too. That wasn't necessarily a story, but it was. Uh, an experience. experience I had to go. Yeah, it was. And, uh, you know, the the having to speak at his funeral wasn't that good. Uh, that wasn't very fun. And uh, knowing that he had a a young son that was um, wanting his dad back and the fallout of his addiction, that was a little bit tough. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, because we're left to deal with and what we see, not mm-hmm. deal necessarily, but we see the aftermath. Well, the finality of it, you yeah. know, you have somebody who relapses and it's like,
1: okay, you relapsed and, you know, however long it takes you to get, come back. Like there's always hope as long as they're alive. But when they're gone, there's the, there's finality to that. And that's, uh, that's, that's not always easy to deal with.
0: That's the point, And I agree with that. I, that. That's the point I think in which the, the hurt that we cause others Unfortunately, they're not there to see it, mm-hmm. right? But the hurt that we cause others is the most apparent when things like that happen. Yeah. And unfortunately, you're there, your family is left to pick up their own pieces, so mm-hmm. to speak, because you're not there to do it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, and yeah, no, I, I can understand that. Um, you the, probably
1: weren't trying to go to the death thing, but that's kind of where I went with
0: it. Well, that. no, I, I, I mean... When I asked you what your hardest story was, I kind of assumed that's where we would go with it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because you and I both, working with veterans and, and the addiction population, have had clients die.
1: Yeah, um,
0: I've had multiple clients die. And it, it just, like you said, the first time was definitely the worst. Um, but I, I try to let, as uncomfortable as that is, and I'm sure you'll probably agree with this, mm-hmm. I try to let that be something that I do experience. I try yeah. not to ever... Just like, like we were talking about earlier, never get jaded to it, mm-hmm. right? Where like, well, that just happens in this field. Well, as true as that is, that's that's avoidant. Yeah, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's important that when counselors lose somebody, they grieve. They have mm-hmm. to. They have yeah. to. You know well, what I
1: mean? Yeah, and you have a duty for the people that you're also you're you're in charge of their care as well. You know, when you when you look at somebody who's um, You know, once again, the finality of it, that's what makes it so hard. You know, addicts aren't stupid. They just do stupid things sometimes. And, you know, when I have a client who's relapsed and they come back into my office, I don't have to beat them up. I don't have to tell them what they did wrong. They They know, man. They already know. And they've been beating themselves up all the way to the drive to the counseling center. And so I don't need to add to that at all. They're, They're doing a good enough job there, right? But at least they're in my office. And at least there's something there that we can move forward to. Mm -hmm. But the finality of, of the death part and at the hands of addiction, you know, that's, that's the tough part. And like you said earlier, the people you leave behind and things like that, that's, that becomes the hardest thing to deal with as a counselor, in my opinion.
0: No, I agree. I agree. Mm -hmm. I've looked at most of the men, well, I would say all of the men that I've, I've worked with and that has died, um, you know, most of the time I've lost a few. A couple, excuse me, a couple while I was working with them, most of them go on down the road and then they end up passing at some later point. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I had somebody that I worked with at the counseling center that you're at now mm-hmm. for like a year and a half. And he graduated the program and stayed with me and was continuing to come. And he was just so stubborn and hardheaded, mm-hmm. you know, and I was just like, man, like, you know, I I see what's happening here. I've been there. I've done that this is going to kill you, Mm -hmm. right? Not to be a Debbie Downer here, but if if my job is to speak truth to you, truth and love, this is going to kill you if you keep making these decisions. Right? And I always used to get met with a, oh man, yeah, yeah. You know, I went to his funeral in October. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And it was gut-wrenching and heartbreaking because he was doing really well. Mm -hmm. And then, he all of a sudden just decided, oh, for whatever reason, he relapsed and within a couple of weeks was dead. And he's got, he had a, a long term girlfriend, a fiance, he had a baby on the way. You know, she was like four months pregnant. I met her at the funeral. His parents were just, I mean, cause he was my age, you know, and it was just like, I, I've had a lot of clients die. That's the first funeral that I've been to. Yeah. And it was absolutely heartbreaking so so heartbreaking and those are the things that when you go to school and you go to spend all you know six seven eight years between school and getting your hours Mm -hmm. they don't talk about that yeah and i think that they should yeah which is why i brought this up and why i wanted to talk about it because this isn't being talked about enough counselors are like yeah it happens we don't want to talk about it Mm -hmm. why why yeah you know what i mean how do you
1: prepare somebody for it though i mean you could talk about it but even talking about and preparing for grief, there's nothing you could do till you're hit with the experience. You can be as prepared as you want in your mind. Uh, I've had to, um, console widows and I've had to console, um, girlfriends and even children of, of people who've lost their lives. And it's like, one of the things I tell them is nobody knows how to deal with death. We don't. Yeah. You can read whatever book you want or have any idea of how to deal with it. Everybody grieves differently and we just don't know how to deal with it. You got to wing it. Exa- exactly. Yeah. And so even giving yourself permission to do that, right? Like I have a, a, a person who's close to me right now that I'm talking to and she called me the other day just to cry. And she said, I'm tired of people asking me, am I okay? No, I'm not okay. My husband's gone. And, you know, in order to console her, I mean, I, I told her like, look, there's no perfect way to do this. If you're not okay, then don't be okay. Find some people to put around you to the best of your ability. Nobody knows how to deal with death. And so you can learn about it in school and you can prepare yourself for it for as much as you, as much as you want, but you're never going to know how you react until you're faced with it.
0: Oh, I agree. Yeah, I agree. And I, and I think that the, the, the value that I see in talking about it is because you're right, you can never prepare for something mm-hmm. like that. But in talking about it, you take away some of the, the initial like the shock, the right? Sting, the yes. shock of it, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. so it's like, it's not a taboo thing. Mm-hmm. So when it happens, I feel more comfortable going to somebody that I trust and, and to, to, that I care about that I can talk to about it. Whereas if I say, well, I know it's a thing that happens to counselors. It's not a matter of if in this field, it's when, when yeah. you know, and so when it does happen, if I if if I've kind of already undid the stigma in my own mind, I'm a little bit more comfortable with the fact that I can t- at least talk about it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. A lot of counselors have clients die, and they're back at work, and it, not that they necessarily take off work, but they, sure. they they kind of go on like nothing ever really happened, mm-hmm. and they don't really discuss it. Mm-hmm. And of course, I know it's not an, an immediate family member or whatever else, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt, and it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be talking about it.
1: Yeah. Well, I think even the, like I said earlier, the people that don't, that we don't know how to deal with death makes it taboo that we don't talk about it. And even, even creating some kind of ritual, even for, uh, for counselors or, or even school learning about it, creating some type of ritual where you do reach out to other people and you do talk about it. This is something that we deal with. Who do you have in your corner that you could talk with about it and process this thing? A lot of counselors have counselors. And that's part of it, also, right? I do. Exactly. Yay. That's part of it, also, yeah. is to make sure that not only are we helping people with their work, but we're putting our work in as well.
0: Yeah. Well, it's hypocritical, honestly, not to. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Well, I don't have
1: a counselor, so thank you for that.
0: Yeah. Well, you're a, appreciate. You're that. a hypocrite, dog. Thank you. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm your counselor. You there, know, thank you. You know no, that. I
1: definitely have ways of, of getting out. Um, I just don't go to formal counseling.
0: No, I don't. I don't like, really no, I get it. No, Uh-oh. well, you
1: called me a hypocrite on.
0: I'm giving, well, I'm giving you a hard time. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I know you're not, you're not a hypocrite.
1: <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Uh-oh. What What makes
0: counseling enjoyable for you? You know, it's kind of a dichotomy because the thing that is the hardest about it and the thing that I enjoy most about it are the same yeah it was the people yeah you know you know what is, I mean? exactly. it is weird because i i think that there's a um like obviously you get into this field because you want to help people mm-hmm. right and you want to love on people and you want to take the experience the the thing that that was put in your life that was meant to destroy you and 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 wasn't successful right you're able to take that and do something good with it um And that's a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. And I love that I get to love on people for a living, Mm -hmm. even though it doesn't really pay that much. You know what I mean? I love that I get to do it. I'm happy. I'm sober. I'm all of the things that I really wanted in life, even though I never saw myself going down this path. Mm -hmm. But at the same exact time, it's also people are also really difficult, Mm -hmm. you know, because when when you're working with the addict population, especially there's no boundaries or very poor boundaries, you know, um, there is a sense of dependence that can show up in a lot of our clients uh, almost every time, almost every time, yeah. because we're modeling healthy relationships for a lot of them for the very first time. They don't even know really what a healthy relationship looks like. They're like, Oh, I got a boyfriend or I got a girlfriend. And, I love him, or I love her, and they're like, "Okay." I'm like, "How's y'all's relationship?" Oh, well, he's hit me a couple of times, but (laughs) I I mean, I know we're (laughs) laughing. No, it's true. It's true. But it's true. You know what I mean? And you're like, "Oh, okay." So it's not healthy at all. And they're like, "Well, I wouldn't wouldn't say that." And you're like, "Oh, okay." So tell me how hitting is healthy. Yeah. You know. And then they get stumped, and then we're back at square one because now they feel attacked. And I mean, it's just it's it's it can it can go downhill really quick. Yeah. And so without going down a rabbit hole. The people are the best and the hardest part of this job.
1: Yeah, for sure, I would agree with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I've I've
1: uh, I heard somebody recently when we we're talking about relationships, and I'm I'm torn between uh, uh, an addict's ability to lie to themselves and then just not having a vision of what a good relationship looks like. And I, I listen to this guy in one of my groups, and he's, you know, yeah, my girl's a good girl, and she loves me, and. Man, she's the only, and it's a jail group, so she's the only one there for me, and she answers the phone call, um, and then come to find out she does meth, and he thinks she's cheating on her. Uh, he thinks she's, yeah, and just a whole big ball of mess. So, and, so all the stuff before that is... Yeah, well, and th- here's, the, here's the hard part. He believes both at the same time. And so that's, I, I know it's so strange. And that's why I, I'm torn between, like, is this guy so ingrained with lying to himself that he can't distinguish the truth anymore? or does he have no idea what a good relationship is? And he really thinks that this is part of, because I feel like I'm loved or I feel like I love her, that that constitutes a good relationship. And so much more than just feelings. You yeah. know, commitment is sometimes in direct opposition of your feelings, right? And that's, the, you know, I mean, you're a married man, you know, Oh, yeah. The, the the way I love my wife is not always going with my emotions, but doing the yeah. right thing, regardless of how I feel. That's what a commitment is. That yeah. is what yeah, a
0: commitment is. No, I would is. agree with that 100%. And,
1: and, yeah. And yeah. so I look at this and this guy specifically, and I can't,
0: I, I'm torn between which one it is. And it may be both at the same time. Who knows? I'm glad that you bring that up, too, because that seems to be something that, that I deal with pretty regularly. And I'm sure you do, too. Probably a lot of counselors. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but. People uh, in the in the and I can't speak for every other population because I don't work with regular like people that are outside the addiction population very much. But. The addiction population, especially, they operate based off how they feel. Yeah. Right. That's the whole really the whole disease of addiction as as a whole. Right. Is Mm -hmm. that I'm reacting to my the world around me and I'm making poor choices as a result of the reaction versus responding, which there's a Mm -hmm. big difference. You know what I mean? So the the the. They, they act off of pure emotion. They love out of their emotion. They hate out of their, all their emotions. And, and what I mean by that is however they feel, that's how they behave.
1: Well, and I also think it goes to the, the atrophy of the frontal lobe, right? That because yeah. of the addiction, the pleasure pathway, the frontal lobe is where your judgment and your decision-making ability is. And people become very instinctual and impulsive because that part of their brain is not functioning the right way. And so you're right, they become impassioned over everything, everything's impassioned. Mm -hmm. And I I think it has a lot to do with that as well. But you're right. The, the, the reaction and the impulsivity, you know, when I, when I got sober, I recognized it was, it was kind of odd. Um, I was in a residential place and I looked up one day and I thought, I would have punched that guy two months ago and I don't want to punch him right now. And, you know, I, it was a good marker for me to look, to look and go, man, I'm, I'm really changing here and really my brain's getting healthy. You know, I'm actually yeah. starting to use my decision making. I'm actually starting Holy to crap. use my good judgment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Who knew you take the drugs out and your brain wants to fix itself. It like works. it wants to get healthy, <laughs>
0: yeah, right? Yeah. 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 Yeah, no, I I agree with that. And, and man, there there's uh there's so many different things. There's so many different routes we could go down. You know, like a lot of the people that are have addictions to have addictions as a result of trauma. Mhm right and ptsd Mm -hmm. and you know working with combat vets um you and i both have worked most of the people we work with have ptsd and the ptsd does something to the brain as well right Mm -hmm. the amygdala which is the um fear-based emotions your fight flight or freeze uh you know response that's the part of the brain that controls that and the amygdala in people with PTSD and with trauma in their lives the amygdala is always in the on position mm-hmm. and that goes against the very that goes against the laws of nature for how the brain's supposed to operate absolutely right so when when somebody's brain when the amygdala is always on in a, in a traumatized brain then we are essentially living moment to moment like our life is at stake mm-hmm. whether we realize it or not And so a lot of people use drugs and they're like, why is my life spiraling out of control? Why am I making these poor choices? Because whether they realize it or not, the subconscious part of their brain is making choices based off of life or death. Mm -hmm. And it it doesn't have to be, right? I can walk into Walmart and it'd be too crowded. And if I'm traumatized and I have PTSD, it'd be really, really easy for me to be like, oh, well, if I don't get out of here, I'm going to die right? And then all those emotional and and bodily physical reactions that take place as a result of that. Mm -hmm. Um, No wonder people are getting high, bro, because it takes that away instantaneously.
1: Yeah. And I think a lot of times the drugs are blamed for that. And truth be known, if they weren't even using drugs, they would still have that response. Yes, A lot of times it's because of the trauma that they use the drugs, right? If you're in this constant fight or flight or freeze, I look at that and it's like, why wouldn't you use something to yeah, get out of that?
0: Self-medication. And people
1: see somebody who's using drugs and they automatically, well, their life's in chaos because they're using drugs. No. Well, you don't necessarily know that. Their life, if you got them off of drugs, their life could still be in chaos. Like a drugs are a symptom of something else going on. And so it's not one or the other. I mean, it, it, that could be the case, but a trauma has a lot to do with that also. Agreed. Yeah.
0: The drugs can can contribute to the chaos for sure. Yes. Right? Because, I mean, you and I both know living that lifestyle mm-hmm. is chaotic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and every, every frame of the word is chaotic. Mm-hmm. Right? But at the same time. That's the part I loved about it. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> yes. it was, It's insane. Come hell or high water. And that's, that's another thing that I talk, to, I talk to my clients about, right? And I'm sure that you'll, you'll agree with this is that getting high and living that lifestyle of addiction, if, if it's nothing else, it's exciting. Yeah. Right? It's never dull, never boring. Mm-hmm. It's also the path of least resistance because of that, mm-hmm. right? Where we're like, how do I want to put this? We, <clears throat> some people would rather be living in their chaos, living like that with their life falling to pieces day after day after day, because it's familiar and it's not boring.
1: Yeah. I could control that part, right? right. Even though I know it's chaos, I still, there's no hidden surprises. I, you, you know, I, and I may have to be fact-checked on this, but there was an experiment in the 50s where um, they put a rat in a box and they electrified the bottom of the box. Mm-hmm. And so this, this rat is constantly getting these jolts of electricity. And so they set this box down and they lifted the lid and you think that rat would jump out of there and get out of that box. But what it would do is it would, it would venture out and anything that it ran into that scared it, it would run straight back into the box. Well, you're getting electrocuted in the box. Yeah, but at least I know it's safe in here. That's scary. And when you look at that, according to addiction, I hear this a lot, right? I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop. And it's like, things are going so good. I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop. And sometimes people get so fearful of what could happen instead of what is, they end up self-destructing. Self-sabotaging. And, and that's the thing. It's like, I can operate in the chaos. Yeah. I don't operate effectively, but at least I know the chaos. Yeah. Right? This, this whole responsibility thing... This whole thing of people wanting me to have my integrity and and people want me expecting to be a good something yeah. from me. Yeah. It's like before. It's like, what do they expect? Well, they 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 hide their purse when I come around. That's they what expect they expect you to be a screw
0: up. They expect yeah. you to
1: lie and 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 not live up to your own uh, your own word or things like that. Well, as a sober person, people expect more out of you. Yeah. And and a lot of people, that's too much for them. I've I've literally seen clients that when responsibility gets put on them, they self destruct. They can't handle it. Yeah. And, and, yeah. they, and it's simply exactly what we're talking about. They operate in the chaos. It's miserable, but at least they know the chaos.
0: Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. And that's the, And you talked about earlier when you first came in, when we first started talking, you talked about the, uh, the, the, the importance of having good people around you, mm-hmm. right, to kind of help you mitigate some of those thoughts. Because I think, it, I mean, I, when you look at the addicted brain as a whole, it's it, as, as counterintuitive as it may seem. You can almost see how th- they, they come to those conclusions, yeah. right? Because it, it, it's if I'm, if, I'm in, if I'm living, like I lived as a heroin addict for years, right? A- and I knew that getting sober would mean probably the, the difference between being able to live out my life or dying early. I knew that getting sober would make people, uh, w- would cause people in my life that I've lost, that I've hurt, I knew getting sober would would bring those people back around again. Mm-hmm. Right. But I chose not to. Why? Well, because as as obviously crushed and just devastated and destroyed as I was, I couldn't really, what was even scarier than that, because you're like you again, you're comfortable with it. What was even scarier than that was trying to come out of that, that mm-hmm. box. Just like you're talking about with the rat, trying to come out of that box. And now I have no idea what living sober looks like. So it's the fear of the unknown. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I I know being sober would be better for me, but I don't know what that looks like. And that's enough for me to go, nope, I'm going to stay right here.
1: Yeah, that's the weird part. That's it's it's scary and exciting at the same time. And I want to say this, you know, I mentioned earlier that when I got sober, I had a lot of people around me that helped me and that were good in my life. I didn't even appreciate those people till years later. You know the people that were around me, I really didn't like anybody when I got sober. I had an eleven year old girl that was my daughter that's the only person I really cared about walking the face of this earth. I, I mean, I hated myself, I hated everybody else, and so when I went into residential to get sober, I was forced to be around people, yeah, and you know yeah. I didn't even appreciate their role in my life in my mind, it's like I can't trust anybody. I'm not going to trust anybody. I need to figure this out on my own and it literally wasn't until years later that I looked back and and I saw how it wouldn't have lined up the way it did if those people weren't in my life. And this new appreciation for social support and community and, and not even people telling me what to do, but people just being there. You know, I learned so much from other broken men in the house with me that they don't even know they were teaching me. Mm-hmm. As we just lived together and operated together, I learned from the people that were around me. And, you know, I look back now and I can actually appreciate it. But if you would have talked to Joe with four months sober, I'd have told you I hate these people. I can't stand them. You know, it's just um, it's me trying to figure this out, trying to get, you know, back home to my daughter or whatever have you. But, you know, growing and being able to appreciate uh, how much we need fellowship and how much we need community and how much we need each other. I can look back and have way more appreciation now than what I did going through it. Wow. And, and I hope that for, for all of our clients uh, that they can get to a place where they do look back and appreciate it. Yeah. Because I think that if you can't appreciate it, if you can't get to a place where you can appreciate uh, the people that sewed into your life and that were around you that helped you, uh, you're going to miss out. You're going to miss out. And it's just you doing it on your own.
0: Yeah. And then really, it kind of cheapens it. It cheapens the whole part. It cheapens the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I agree with that. And, and, you know, speaking of connectivity and how imperative that is Mm -hmm. in addiction recovery, um, and I might need to not be fat checked on this, but the professor alexander and the rat park experiment i don't know what college what what college he was at but it's the rat park experiment um and he's going to pull that up for me here but professor this was i think this was this has been a while back but um they did this experiment called rat park and i think that you and i have talked about mm-hmm. this right but the rat park experiment was essentially we're going to put Rats. And the reason that, by the way, for the listeners who don't know this, the reason that um, a lot of psych researchers use rats is because they're very social creatures. Mm-hmm. And we're actually a lot more similar to them. Well, biologically, yeah. Yeah, say, yeah. Biologically and socially, mm-hmm. a lot more similar to them than people may first some meet the eyes. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, yeah. But we so rats are very similar to us biologically and socially. Mm-hmm. Right. And so and they're very smart. And so they would put these rats in cages by themselves and they would have, you know, little water beakers for like hamsters and stuff. Mm-hmm. They would have uh, one beaker on one side of the cage that was water, just straight water. The other one was a water and morphine or a water and cocaine mixture. Didn't really matter what the drug was, right? It was, one, was it morphine? Yeah. Okay. All right. It was water and morphine. So you got a water morphine mixture and then regular water here. Right? So when these – they would do this over and over again. They would do it with these different rats, and every time that they put the rat in the, in the, the cage by itself, what would happen?
1: Well, they continued to take the morphine.
0: They would use the morphine water. Exclusively. And they, they, almost exclusively, and they would use it, in, they would use it all the time, mm-hmm. incessantly, and they would almost all very quickly overdose and die, these rats would. And they repeated this over and over again putting these rats in there and the the important aspect of that i think is the the singularity that comes along with like being the solidarity maybe is a better word of so, being in that place having nothing else to do but use the mm-hmm. drug water right I, I may be wrong at this but i don't think they died from the morphine
1: i think the only drug that they used till they actually died was cocaine at some point there's a threshold where they'll quit using until they go back to it. I may be
0: wrong. On yeah. That. I, yeah. We might need to We'll definitely need to fact check that because I, I'm almost positive that, that they were overdosing. Dine. Yeah. But I, anyway, we'll figure that out yeah. in a second. But um, regardless, right, you put these rats in a cage by themselves and they habitually and incessantly use the drug water and they very rarely touch the, the, the regular water. Mm hmm. But then they would, they came up with this rat park, right? And basically it was a huge rat cage where a bunch of rats could get in there together and they, would, they could congregate and socialize. They had, you know, tubes and and wheels and things to play with and they, they could all, eat all they want, drink all they want, have all the sex they want, all these different things, right? And, and sign me up. <laughs> sure. Right? Yay. So that sounds like a pretty cool place. Yeah. There was no, uh, Okay. Okay. So, so there. I I I initially heard of this story. I and say I I never looked it up like that. Did you find out where he was from, by the way? What what Professor Alexander? Uh, Bruce Alexander in the 1970s. Yeah. Um. What do you mean? Where, where's Like part? what college? Oh, Simon Fraser University in British Columbia, Canada. Okay. Yeah. So he's a Canadian Canadian professor. I guess but he knew what he was talking about. Yeah, talking about? <laughs> you're dumb. Uh, you <laughs> had, had to throw it in there, didn't you? I had you? to throw it in All there. All right. Man. So um, I initially heard this story from Johan Hari, mm-hmm. who he's an addiction specialist, um, and he does TED Talks and things. He's a pretty renowned guy in the addiction field. Him and Dr. Gabor Mate, which I love. I love him. Um, I initially heard this Rat Park story from Johan Hari, and Johan Hari was talking about the – when they would take the morphine water, they would quickly overdose and die. That's what he would say. So that's what he said on the TED Talk anyway. But regardless, right, the idea here is that these rats were in here by themselves, and they were basically Mm -hmm. self-destructing. Then they put them in this big cage where they could do all these things together, and they could socialize. They were connected, Mm -hmm. Right. And the outcome was the same. They had water beakers on one side of this big cage, and then water morphine mixtures on the other side. Almost none of the rats used the water morphine mixture. Except and for if recreational. They, yeah, yeah, and if they did, it was very sparingly. It was mm-hmm. recreational. Mm-hmm. None of them died. None of them overdosed. And um, they, but but what 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 they were saying is like, okay, based off this experiment, these rats have. They they're connected, and because they're connected, they no longer want to use. So here here's here's what I draw from that. What if you're not motivated motivated
1: socially? Because you know rats biologically need each other and want to connect. You know one of the problems that I got when I got sober is I was not motivated socially. Matter of fact, I don't want to be around anybody. And so like what if what if you're not motivated to be social? And I think that that goes back to later on appreciating. With the position you are and the people that are around you, even if you can't in the moment.
0: I agree. And I know that, that it's, I, I, I can agree with you that it would be, that it would be something that is a lot more challenging for some people than for others, because me, I don't meet a stranger, right? Yeah. So I, I have no problem with connecting with yeah, people. I can sure. connect with the dude at the gas station. Yeah. You know what I mean? It doesn't bother me. be left
1: alone to tell you the truth. So. I know,
0: yeah. and, I, and I know that about yeah. you, right? But, but and that's okay. It doesn't mean that either one of us are wrong. Exactly. Right? It, it's just, it's preference. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, whether you tend to be left alone or I annoy everybody that I meet, whether it's wanting you wanting to be left alone or, or me annoying everybody that I meet, the it comes down to it doesn't change the fact that we still got to be connected.
1: I agree with that wholeheartedly and I think that that's the part that uh, the the biggest key factor that I truly believe in people's addiction recovery is community support and social belonging. You have to develop a community and if you look at people in their addiction lifestyle they don't start using on their own. They had friends that were doing the same thing. They were doing the same stuff to get the drug. They'd go to the same parties with the same people. It was a social aspect. You know, the, the thing about the, 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 life, the lifestyle or the life cycle of the addiction is you end up alone. You end up to a place where you don't want to be around anybody and you hate yourself. That's at the very end of the addiction, right? Usually before people are motivated to change. And so like, that, I, I definitely agree with you. When you get somebody in recovery, they have to find the same support in their recovery.
0: Whether it, whether it comes to them naturally or not. Yeah, no,
1: right? exactly. Yeah. That, that's yeah. the whole point is if you can't find that, there isn't any success. Yeah, And I've yeah. seen it time and time again. The the, uh, the the arrogant idea that I can do this on my own. If you could do it on your own, you would have already done it. You've already done it. You, 100%. Haven't, you haven't done it. And the, yes. the fact that you're lying to yourself in and, and, and denial of that. You know, I call this my conundrum. And I've, I've actually opened up quite a bit over the past five years. And my wife has, has really helped me out a lot with this. But when I got sober, I called this my conundrum because um, I'm an introvert. I, I, I have to be by myself at some point of the day, right? Uh, if I'm around people, I can become overwhelmed. But when I come home, um, I, I need, you know, 10 or 15 minutes to assess my feelings or what happened through the day and see things like that. And so my, my time alone is very precious to me. It's where I gain my power, right? But I can't spend too much time alone because if I spend too much time alone, my thoughts become erratic and I start thinking about things that I shouldn't. Or I started indulging in things that I that I shouldn't that aren't good for me, mm-hmm. and so that's the conundrum. It's like I understand myself that for me as an introvert, I do need time by myself to regain my power. But when I spend too much time alone, it's not good for me in the long run. And I, balance. I absolutely and yeah. and it is the social support. It is the community, uh, the social belonging, the community support. We need each other. Yeah, you know, I, it's I I don't see anybody successful in the recovery that does it on their own. It just doesn't happen. They have some sense of connectivity to either the immediate family or some type of group, NAAA church, um, race car driving, mountain, bike, whatever it is. There has to be some social belonging or community support develop.
0: I agree, mm-hmm. and, and 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 you know another. This is to kind of drive the same point home, but this is another thing that I saw actually from Johan Hari again. Mm-hmm. Um, is he was talking about, and I I have looked this up, so the the I'm, I'm not going to give a whole bunch of numbers because I don't want to give wrong numbers, but so this the, one will be right. The, the The idea is the is the same. Shut up, dude. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, the idea here is the same, though, right? Is that uh, Portugal, right? Mm-hmm. Port the 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 country of Portugal um, had at one point one of the biggest heroin problems in the world, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Um. Which is, that's saying something, right? Because that's not a very big country. And so, so what Portugal did was they came up with, they were like, okay, look, we got to do something about this, Mm -hmm. right? There's way too many people, um, illicitly, you know, taking heroin and, and addicted, like it's a major problem. It's putting a major strain on the government and the tax dollars and whatever else. And so. They came together and they all these social scientists and sociologists and psychologists and government employees, whatever else. And they all came together and said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to decriminalize all drugs.
1: Sounds like a great
0: plan. Yeah. (laughs) Well, (laughs) there are some places in the U.S. doing that right now, but they're missing the critical next step, which is what we're going to talk about. This is a difference of of how it was successful versus just making the problem 10 times worse. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, because places in the Pacific Northwest are decriminalizing drugs, and that's it. Uh, I think that right
1: now they're actually starting to criminalize them again. Because they are they, they, because yeah. it was such a problem. It was a problem, right? Yeah.
0: But see, what Portugal did was they they did, they they went they took it a step further, which is why it was so successful. So they said we're gonna we're gonna decriminalize all drugs from cannabis, crack, heroin, meth, whatever. We're gonna decriminalize all drugs. We're gonna take all the money that we save from from not having to incarcerate low-level drug users, essentially, mm-hmm. right? Which, again, at one point for them was a big deal. We're going to take all that money and we're going to put it into job creation, treatment, and reconnecting addicts and alcoholics to society rather than ostracizing and punishing them like the United States and many other governments in this world do, um, right? Like the U.S., I believe, has had it wrong for a long time where we say, okay, you're using drugs. We're going to put you in prison. We're just going to take it away. We're going to, but hear me right? Because yeah. when you're in prison, it's easier to get high in prison sometimes than it is when you're not in prison. So, cause it's a concentrated area of manipulative addicts a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And so they say, we're going to punish you. We're going to give you a, we're going to give you a criminal record. We're going to make it hard for you to get a house or an apartment or a car make it hard for you to get a job that's not minimum wage, and then we're going to be mad at you when you relapse and fail. Mm-hmm. Right? Talk about a system that's set up yeah. for people to fail. That's the one that you'd pick if you want people to to fail. You know what I mean? So, so I differ with from you a little bit in this area. Okay. I, I think that
1: the war on the war on drugs was definitely. Um, a wrong step that they thought was taken in the right direction. And I I agree with that Uh, criminalizing, um, if this is a disease, uh, why criminalize a disease? You know, if it's progressive and and consistently relapsing, why criminalize that? Uh, I agree with that portion of it. I think today there's, there's more stuff in place today to not send addicts to prison than there ever has been. No,
0: I agree with that. hundred percent. So when I look at, when I look at
1: the difference, and this is just my own opinion, when I look at the difference between what happened to Portugal and maybe even right now, what's happened in the North, Northwestern States, um, I think it's more of a cultural thing because, you know, America is so uh, rich in the area of getting help. If you really want it, like it's, it's not even hard. You can find even places that'll, that'll pay for you to get help if you want it. And so there's not you know this this effort to make you know put all this money into helping these people find jobs and get treatment. Well, we have that in America. I I think that there's probably a little bit more of a like we're talking about connectivity, a little bit more connected culture in Portugal than what you deal with the the me 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 selfie culture that we have in America. And I think that in just my opinion, I think that a lot of that has to do with the culture that it does anything. If you take what what worked in Portugal, Portugal and you drop it in America, I don't know if we we are in the mindset psychologically as a culture to even make that successful.
0: Yes. And I think even going beyond that logistically, it mm-hmm. probably wouldn't work because Portugal is uh, exponentially smaller than the United States. Right. So the money would just wouldn't be there. Mm -hmm. uh, Well, and to finish my story on Portugal, what, 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 what they did was they took all this money and they said, okay, we're going to stop criminalizing this. We're going to take all this money. We're going to pour it into job creation treatment, um, you know, reconnecting people to society, all that stuff. And what they found was by doing that people were, um, able to, they were able to have better access to treatment. So they were able to get sober. Mm -hmm. And then they would go to businesses all over the country and they would say, Hey, look, if you'll hire these people and we make a deal with you, where you hire the people that we send you, we'll pay half their wages for a year, things like that. Mm -hmm. Right. And so they create incentive for the community to reach out and help these people. Mm -hmm. And what they found was that the people that were going through this process we're getting sober, and uh, they did this for several years, and what ended up being the case is the numbers that at least that Johan Hari reported on his TED Talk was that after a few years of doing this, the, uh, the illegal drug use problem, especially specifically the opioid problem in Portugal was down by 50, five zero percent. That's huge. Yeah, right? Yeah. And so the United States historically has criminalized addiction right, and the disease of addiction, if you may, and and I don't necessarily agree with that. I do understand what what you're saying, that right now there is kind of an influx for mental health um, as a whole in our country where they're starting to realize the importance that the brain's one of the most vital organs of all. Before,
1: I I believe, just from my own experience, before
0: you go to prison
1: for a basic uh, low amount of dope, you've already been through probation and treatment and four or five different chances before you're sent to prison. People who today, I believe, are sent to prison on dope charges are intent to sell or trafficking or things of that nature. Now, this wasn't the case in the 90s or even the early 2000s. If you got caught even with a little bit of dope, you're going to prison for two years. No, I agree. And I think today, if you're in prison for a two year sentence on a low amount of, let's just say methamphetamine, then you've already blown through your chances to get there. And I, I, that's just kind of what I see from now.
0: No, I don't, I don't disagree. I mean, I work in the court system every day. You Mm -hmm. work with court system, right? So I I would agree with that. I I think the thing that it boils, in my opinion, right. I know we're kind of debating on this now at this point, but my opinion here is that it all boils down to money. Okay. Because I believe that the, that the United States as a whole and all of the States here in the union would be dedicating more money to mental health if they could. They don't value it. Yeah, but they don't. Right. And, it, and that's really what it comes down to is it comes down to not valuing it or it comes down to, um, you know. Now, again, I think that we're in a place where today that's a lot more accessible than it ever has been before. Mm-hmm. But we still have a long way, a long way to go. And it, and it comes down to money because, because we as a society, as a culture, like you were talking about, don't value mental health quite mm-hmm. as much as we should. Mm-hmm. Um, we 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 end up being underfunded in the mental health area. Texas is especially bad about that. Well, it's one of the, the it's uh, I think I want to say it's number forty eight uh, out of the fifty states for mental health funding.
1: Yeah, they want results, and there's no guarantee. Yeah, right. There's no guarantee, and you know, I, even at the residential place that I was working at, you you wouldn't believe how many young people would come there, and their dad would call and say, "Look, I'm paying you six hundred dollars a month. What's the guarantee that it's going to fix him?" And it's like. Where did you zero. see that? Yeah, there's zero, zero. guarantee, yeah. and and you you see people who financially, you know, it's not a very good business when there's that much of a risk.
0: Also, six hundred dollars a month, get over yourself. Yeah, right. right? <laughs> <laughs> That's cheap. Yeah.
1: Sorry. Right, go ahead. No, no, you're right. No, I I agree with you. I think that the 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 wanting the the. Wanting the certainty that that it's going to work or that their their loved one's going to be fixed, it's just we can't give that.
0: No, and because we can't give that, governments don't are like, well, well mm-hmm. why, that's a dumb investment. Why would I do that? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I'm going to invest in something that has almost a zero percent of chance of working. Mm-hmm. Like from a business perspective, that's like that's a stupid. That would be throwing my money away, mm-hmm. right? So, but that's what it comes down to is that, and that comes back to AJ and I have talked extensively. Uh, just last week, we talked about counselors being underpaid. Mm-hmm. Right. So you have mental health costs are expensive. Um, Governments are not really willing to extend a whole lot of money um, to help offset the cost. And we need to get paid. They need the help. AJ said last week, where's all that money going? Right. Because mental health is expensive. But we don't, but we're also underfunded. So so there was there a middleman somewhere? Like is somebody pocketing money? It goes to activists. Yeah. That's Whoever's, lobbyists. Wh- whatever, whatever activist whatever is the
1: loudest at the moment is where the money goes to. Yeah, no, I agree. and you don't have a lot of people championing uh, addicts. You know, I, I no, because they don't understand it. Well, they don't. And I, I think that, you know, this this program that me and my wife are gonna open up, you know, we did a, a fundraiser in October of last year, and this was the emphasis of what I wanted to get across to people is, you know, when you when you look at these different groups that need help. You look at veterans, right? Well, they serve the country. Uh, Who doesn't want to help a veteran, right? Especially in Texas. Oh, yeah. Uh, You look at uh, battered women. Well, this woman was abused by her husband. Who doesn't want to help a woman with children? You look at traffic victims. Everybody's heart goes out for these people. And rightfully so, man. These are people that, as a society, we need to take care of. But then you look at guys who should have been taking care of their family. They should have been holding down a job. They should have been growing up and being men and being... Uh, embedded in their community and doing right things and mentoring other men. And you look at them and it's like, well, I don't want to dump money into those guys. Those guys should have been doing the right thing and they're not. And, and it's really crazy because there's, a, there's not a lot, you know, when I, when we, um, when you were working at the same place I was, you know, the residential place for veterans that would come out there, th- there was no shortage in funding. Like they were funded well, and please hear me rightfully so. Like, to put your money behind somebody who served your country to get them help, rightfully so, right? The, the, the place that I was working at as a program director, there's no funding for men that, that are addicts. There, there, there's, no, there's, there's not really a
0: tender we, heart for men that are addicts. The only, the only tender hearts I've ever seen outside of, like, these populations, like you're talking about, like, you know, single mothers and and veterans and things like that. The only tender hearts that I see towards that, that are people that are willing to dump money into it if they have it, are people that have personally been affected by exactly. addiction, yeah. or or has have a loved one of you know a father, a son, a brother, a wife, a daughter, a sister, somebody. It's personal
1: to them. It's personal Absolutely. to them, and it, and
0: it means something to them. Mm-hmm. But as a whole, you get people. I mean, and everybody at this point, this day and age, everybody probably knows somebody who's been addicted, somebody they're close to that struggle with addiction. But yeah. the, but the reality is is that some people are just are, because they don't understand it, because they don't have a very good idea, I mean, even people that have family members who have, you know, addicted family members, they're like, oh yeah, I don't know what his deal is, mm-hmm. right? or I don't, I, I, I don't talk to him anymore, or this, yeah. that, and the other. And so there's a disconnect, right? And mm-hmm. so people just don't want to invest in that. Yeah. But 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 you take the same person who's got maybe hit the identical situation, and they're doing all the same exact things that that person is, that's, that this person over here is doing, but they're a combat vet yeah and now all of a sudden they're worth more right i'm not trying to i'm a marine right i'm not trying to discount what the vets have done i believe rightfully so that they should be sure getting, getting the help that they need because they were put in a position that they didn't ask to be put in absolutely right so i 100 i don't disagree with that so please hear me on that but at the same time what may i mean yes this veteran sacrifice this but that they're both human beings mm-hmm. right and they both deserve the same exact amount of care, concern, love and support. Mm. I, I believe that. You know, that's, that's why
1: I want to invest in that. You know, yeah, I, I think yeah. that earlier saying that these are men that, that should have been taking care of their families and should have been involved in their community and should have been doing the right thing. Well what happens when you restore that, right? What, what happens when they get rid of the addiction or they actually get help and their, their life comes back together? Well then you got a restored husband and a restored father and a restored member of the community and and that's you know that my heart and it's the same thing we talked about earlier why is it why is it my heart toward this well because it's personal to me like i know how much i threw away my family before and i know the the most valuable thing i have right now is my family and so it's like if we can restore other people to the same thing if men can be called to be great if men can can be called to be great men instead of um, I mean, weak and lazy and um, things that people are today, mm-hmm. right? If they can call to be great and really step into the responsibility that they should, things would change. And, and that's part of the reason why I think that it, it's, it's important to call people who are in that position to be better and be greater. And then, and then to give them the model that they can do it, that it's not all a loss. Yeah. I hope no. that makes sense. No, it does. Uh,
0: it, do- it does make sense to me. It does. So I kind of want to. I want to move into talking about, like what we had talked about before we started recording about the the uh, disease model of the brain versus the the the, 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 the disease model of, of spirituality, right? And, mm-hmm. and kind of um, not how spirituality is a disease, but you know what I mean. <laughs> it's but, a contagious infection. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. This is so bad. Um, I think there's a lot of things that go into the spirituality of a person. When you look at the studies that tend towards spirituality or
1: religiosity, the numbers are in. People who have a sense of spirituality or religiosity tend to do better in recovery. Um, you know, when I, when I talk to my clients who push, up, push back against, man, the concept of God or a higher power, you know, what are the things that have to be in place? Well, um, first of all, he has to be benevolent. He has to be good. Um, he has to want better for you and he has to be able to handle certain things. You know, spirituality has been the basis of my recovery. And part of the reason is, is because it deals with my sense of shame and my, my sense of, of, of my own morality, right? You know, when I would wake up in the morning, um, you know, I, I lived my life as an atheist. I was an atheist uh, until I had a, a definite moment in my life where God revealed who he was and it changed my whole, my whole perspective on life and everything. right? And so living as an atheist, there's nothing bigger than me. Like, it, it, this is all I have. This is what I'm stuck with. And so spirituality, the, the ninth hopeless, really, it's very hopeless. Yeah. And even even the concept of thinking about death and the the finality of death and that that why do I feel like there's something more than that? Even when I think of death, it's like I picture myself alive in utter blackness and, and abyss. And well, OK, well, that doesn't even make sense because but there's something in, eternal inside of me that I just I can't. I can't be okay with the finality of death. And you know, I, I, didn't run, uh, I didn't run to God out of fear. Matter of fact, I didn't want anything to do with Him. He wanted something to do with me. And so, you know, one night God revealed Himself to me in a way that, that is unmistakable that uh, I can't deny. Uh, it, it changed my whole mindset, uh, my whole belief system, my whole worldview, and I can't think like an atheist anymore. I know that God's real. And so that's been the basis of my recovery. Now, now, why specifically? Because I don't want to just throw stuff in the air. I want to be very specific on why. Um, first and foremost it's because I, hate, I hated myself. I hated myself. I hated who I'd become. I had such a heavy sense of shame uh, of what I had done. You know, when you look at somebody who's, who's faced addiction for a long term, um, they're, when they start using drugs, they don't hate themselves. You know, when they start using the drugs, they have a, 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 an ability to manage their life, this, this illusion that they can manage the drug use, that they can have fun, whatever have you. Well, that doesn't happen to somebody at the end of their addiction. And so if you would have come back to me at, at, let's just say, 18 and said, you know, Joe, you're, you're a no good drug addict and you're a piece of crap. 18-year-old uh, Joe would have said, who are you? I'm, I'm just a kid. I'm having fun, man. Can't you see how much fun I'm having? Right. Well, fast forward to me at 30, at the end of my addiction, when I couldn't even pull anything together. And if, if you were to look at me and say, Joe, you're a piece of crap drug addict and you're no good. Like I know. I, yeah. Yeah, I get it. I am. And I look back at the evidence. This isn't the way I feel. I look back at my life and I see the evidence. And from from the point of somebody who who manages, a, manages their life and everything's going well for them or that they have the illusion of managing to the person who can't pull anything together, there are definite markers in between there where somebody will do something they said they would never do yeah and those markers devalue a person and the shame sets in deeper and the violation of your own morality well guess who has to live with that you do and so it's like you know understanding that i said i would never do this before well there comes a day where i did it and now I would have to think about myself because 16 year old joe that's just smoking weed if, if I would went to him and said, hey, man, you're going to do cocaine one day. No, I'm not, a, I'm not a loser. I'm not a crackhead. Well, what happens when I do cocaine? Well, that's the thoughts that I think about myself. I'm a loser now. And so these moments in your life where you do things that you said you would never do, that's the, the, the deepening of devalue and the deepening of shame. Now, how does, how does spirituality deal with that? Well, how do I deal with that? How do I deal with my own sense of shame or my own sense of, of understanding of who I am? And, and for me, the, the, you know, God, God being real didn't fix everything for me. Um, I didn't want God to be real. I didn't want to have a personal relationship with God. I actually would rather just kind of read the Bible and figure it out and then just kind of do it on my own. But it doesn't happen that way, right? It didn't work like that. It doesn't work like that at all. And so what, what God has shown me over the years is that um, He can deal with my shame, right? The thoughts I have about myself are evidence-based. I look back and I see the stuff that I've done, and I look back at there and it's hard not to think negative thoughts about what I've done and who I am. Well, then I look at what God has said about me, and then I, I, I supplement with what I feel about myself with what God has said. If God... Um, did talk if God did rescue me? If God did in interject Himself into my life without my prompting, I wasn't one of those guys who called himself an atheist and then prayed when nobody was looking. I never prayed, and I remember sitting on the edge of my couch, and this was a very low moment for me. I'm sitting on the edge of my couch and I'm detoxing from fentanyl, and I remember uh, sitting on the edge of my couch and grabbing my hair and pulling my hair out literally because I just wanted a, a fentanyl patch so bad, and I never looked up and said, "God, please help me." But I remember thinking like, why is my life like this? I hate myself. And to to know now that God heard that and interjected himself into my life. And so when I have these thoughts about myself that I'm no good, I'm not worth it. Okay. Well, there's got to be something there that God saw that he, that he wanted, he wanted me. And so even when I see no value, he sees value. Right. And so just like getting from the, the, the manageable point of my life to the point where I devalue myself to think that I'm a piece of crap. To go back the other way is learning to value yourself. Well, I'm not a guy who does positive affirmations in the mirror in the morning. Mm-hmm. I don't look in the mirror and go, man, you're, you're just a nice guy. And I really don't have the best thoughts about myself. And I really don't even trust my opinion a lot of the time. Well, I like to lean yeah. on truth, you know?
0: Not to interrupt you, but my, my pastor said something about this one time. He was like, he goes, how many of you guys, Honestly, talking, he was talking about like, we all have this opinion that, like, oh man, if anybody knew what went through my head, mm-hmm. right? I'm, I wouldn't be the good Christian everybody thought I was, or this, that, the, you know. And he was like, how would you guys like it if I could just take the last 15 minutes of your thoughts, put them on a flash drive, and then plug them into the projector and put them up here in front <laughs> of the church? Yeah. Um, I was like, well, I'd probably, uh, dig myself into a literal hole. Right. Like, that would be awful. That's awful to even think about. Mm -hmm. Um, But but you're right, man. Like, I think we all kind of have this idea that, um, you know, we are if anybody really knew what was going on up here. Mm -hmm. Right. That we would be outcasted. Nobody would want to be around us. This, that and the other. Why do you think that is? Well, I think because I think because at least in my mind. Right. That there's there's this idea that. um Oh, I'm, I'm demented. I'm demoralized. What like, if you are demented? Oh, I am. I know I am. But see, that's the whole point,
1: that's, right? That is my point as well. Yeah,
0: sir. that's the whole point, right? Is that I know that, you know, and again, I know everybody's faith is, can be different and, and, they, and whatever else, right? But I know that the, the best thing about the Christian faith for me is that it's not about me at all. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And that's what I love about it because I know apart from what I know is my truth, right? I know apart from that, um, I'm nothing. Right. Yeah. But I but it's I have one of my favorite verses. I, yes, but I have I have somebody to stand in the gap for me. Mm-hmm. Right. Now again, not everybody believes that way. and not everybody's had a real like experience like a god experience Mm -hmm. like what you're talking about sure and and so i guess my question for you just for everybody to to hear right and for and i'd like to hear you i think everybody would like to hear your opinion on it because i know that you you know you preach and you're a pastor and Mm -hmm. things like that so um for people, what would you tell people who were in recovery who are looking to further their spirituality but haven't had that experience like you've talked about what would you tell people what would you say would be a good place to start belief. Okay. Uh,
1: it all starts with hope. You know, what, what is your hope in? You can't move forward without hope. And even, even, you know, clients that reject God or reject the idea of God uh, they sit in front of you, they have to have hope in something, right? A lot of times
0: they're their family or something
1: like that. So there's a saying that, that, that we used to say, and I always still say it is, you never know, God's all you need until God's all you got. And so people have to put their hope in something, you know, for me, um, I, I, in my atheism completely negated the whole spiritual side. Um, you know, I, I was a materialist. There is no spirit. There is no spiritual side of anything. Everything is, you know, random atoms and, and um, electrons and neutrons and all that other good stuff. Right. And I totally negated the spiritual side where my mind is opened up to it. Now, as far as like you look at even the word hope, what is hope? Is that an emotion? Well, that's a spiritual reality. When you look at peace, is peace and emotion. I mean, we have, I asked a guy one time, what is peaceful to you? And he's like, on a surfboard, on the waves of Hawaii or whatever. No, that's just absence of negative circumstances. That's not necessarily peace. You have nothing negative going on, right? Peace is when chaos is around you, yet you still have this still sense of, um, I'm going to be okay. For me, it's because my faith is in something bigger than me, you know? Um, That's definitely played a key role in my life. So to anybody, you have to believe in something. Your hope has to be put in something. And and to me, it doesn't have to be God in the beginning. It could be whatever works for you. It it could be a program, or it could be a, a group of people that help you. It could be your counselor. It could be whatever. It doesn't matter to me. You have to find what works for you. But later on, if God calls you to give him honor for the work that he's done in your life, that's a choice that everybody has to take
0: on their own, and that's the journey for them going back to what you said earlier, you can't do this by yourself. Mm. It's impossible. It really is. Right. Because the, at the end, at the end of the day, the reason that people are in that mess to begin with is because of themselves yeah. <laughs> and the choices that they're making. I mean, I know it's, there are circumstances and, and things that are contribute to it for sure. Right. Well, but, I want to touch on that real quick. Sure, go ahead. Th- this is the reason why,
1: um, Christianity, you know, when God spoke to me, he didn't say, Hey, I'm, I'm, i um, God and, and Jesus is <laughs> yeah, the way, yeah. um, it, it, it lined up that way. Yeah. And when I started learning the truth in my life and I looked at, at, at what Christianity spoke to my soul, right? The, the idea that I'm a good person, you couldn't convince me of that, right? And so the idea that the, the thoughts that I have about myself were my reality, that was, that's, that's literally what I felt about myself. You're no good. You're never going to be good, yada, yada, yada. That was my reality at the time. The Bible speaks to that. That's the part that became real to me. There's no part in the Bible where, where God goes, you're just amazing just the way you are. No, well, no, in fact, it says quite the opposite. It says the opposite. And yeah. that's the part yeah, that yeah, spoke yeah. that spoke to my reality. The heart is desperately wicked. And, and just for, for, for any of your audience, if you ever sit in front of a counselor and they tell you, follow your heart, get up and get out. Your heart is desperately <laughs> wicked. You have no yeah. idea what's good for <laughs> you, right? Yeah. And yeah. so when I look at what the, what the Bible-
0: our hearts usually while we end up in oh, those Oh, absolutely. Rims, it does, it I mean? doesn't even
1: make sense to me. That's, yeah. that's just f- fluff stuff people put on a wall, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so when Live, I look laugh, at- love. Ex- exactly, right? <laughs> I'm sorry. No, ahead. you're okay. So when I, when I look at like what the Bible actually said about me and my identity, right? That your heart is desperately wicked. That apart from me, you are nothing. That your, your righteousness within itself is filthy rags. Well, I look at my life and I go- that's it.
0: That, that, check, that, that check, checks check, out,
1: right? Yeah. And then the yep. adverse part of it, because that's the tension that we live in, is that apart from God, there there is no value. But yet, what does God see in me? Well, I'm what the what they call the imago Dei. I'm made in the image of God. That God says that I'm beautifully and wonderfully made, and I'm a masterpiece created anew in Christ Jesus, and that 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 God has set me apart for good works. And and to me, that that tension spoke to where I was like the positive affirmation to me would just feel like me lying to myself. Now, please hear me, I'm not discounting positive affirmation. Like I said, people have to find what works for them. And and I, at the end of the day, when you're dealing with addiction or mental health, everybody needs to find what works for them. I never want anybody to supplement the right path for the path that I chose, or the path that God has put in front of me. And so if positive affirmation works, great. To me, I'd feel like I was lying to myself. If I stood in front of the mirror and says, you know what, man, you're a good guy,
0: and you're lovable. I just wasn't there. I've been sober multiple years, and I, and I'm I'm. If I looked at myself in the mirror and said some of those things, I'd have trouble with it. Mm-hmm. I, well, I would feel like I would. I feel like I would be trying to trick myself into sobriety. Well, and see, and that's that's kind of the whole point of it, right? Is that like say those things to yourself. Just like we lied to ourselves for so long yeah. and we, you know, you tell yourself a lie enough, it becomes your reality, it becomes your truth. And so it's, it's kind of the same concept, those positive affirmations, is you say those good things about yourself enough, you start to believe it. And there may be some correlation, some truth to that. Um, I personally, again, am not a big, huge proponent of, you know, positive affirm- I mean, I think, like you said, saying good things about yourself is a good thing. Sure. right? It can be uplifting. But- At the same time, like you said, man, the people that are sitting in front of us have nothing good to say about themselves. Mm -hmm. And I've seen that almost 100% of the time. When people sit in front of me, they're like, my life is a complete dumpster fire. Everybody hates me. I hate me, right? There's no hope in that, Mm -hmm. none. And so when I tell a person that's in that position with the season of life that they're currently just kind of getting tossed around in, right? Say some good things about yourself in the mirror. They're gonna be like, what? Mm. You
1: know what I mean? Regardless of of whatever religion you wanna, whatever religion you wanna adhere to, there are spiritual realities, there just are. Um, You know, I, I mentioned a couple earlier, um, hope, and peace, uh, and, and joy, I mean, the, love. These, are, yeah, these are spiritual realities. We have different concepts of what we think love is, and a lot of times, people throw around the, the word love, and they don't even know what the, the 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 true concept is, right? A woman's getting beaten by her husband.
0: He's well, a good why, guy when you yeah. get to
1: know him. Why, why don't I you leave? Him. I love him. Okay, well, the, come on, that's a misconception of what love is, right? Um, I, I think spirituality is, is so important in addiction, specifically. Um, because how do you resolve the morality? How, how do you resolve the shame that comes from the things that that you've done or, or who you have become? Right, the guilt is the things you know. The shame is who I am now, and and the because of those things exactly. Yeah, and and the the spiritual principles of of Christianity, I believe, deal with all those, and that's why it was so impactful for me. You know, uh, to 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 not shy away from the reality of what I had. You know, the, my idea of of what the bible was as an atheist was it's these bunch of rules you have to follow and and if this man Jesus was real he wouldn't come for me i mean he's he's there for the the good people in church and it's really weird because like i'm comfortable in a trap house man but you're going to catch me in a church right and it's like i'd i'd be uncomfortable being in a church and and my life is completely different now where you're not going to catch me in a trap house
0: yeah no i think that that's a great point i do i really appreciate you sharing that too and Kind of getting like intimately vulnerable with your own spirituality and what you believe in, and I think that there's a lot of people that are going to resonate with that. Man, I really appreciate you coming on today. All joking aside, I I really enjoyed having you today, and and I really appreciate you sharing your valuable insight, your experience. Um, I've I've learned a lot from you just today, you know. And I know that we're friends, but uh, just having the be being able to have these very intimate and 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 like conversations like this, I think are very valuable. You know what I mean and, and People need to hear what you got to say, right? You got a lot of experience, you got a lot of uh, a lot of wisdom because of the things you've been through in life, and so um, I really appreciate you taking the time to to be with us today. and And I hope that you will consider coming back and visiting with us again in the future.
1: Yeah, man. I'm, any, anytime you, need, man, it's been an, an honor and a pleasure for me too. And I uh, I watch y'all's uh, y'all's podcast, and I watch your shorts, and y'all are doing good things, man. And I really appreciate it. It's a breath of fresh air, man, to be able to. To to listen to a counselor's take, man, and to see that um, there is people out there who care and, and people do recover and re you know, re reinforcing that. And I think it's cool. And plus the jokes kill, man. I love y'all's jokes. The jokes so that's are cool. awful, which makes yeah, them that's cool. what makes
0: them good though, right? <laughs> yeah. So yeah.
1: No, it's been it's been an honor and a pleasure, and I'm thankful that you have me on. Cool. Cool.
0: All right, guys. So if you like this, uh, if you like this content today, please like subscribe, follow us. Uh, We do answer our emails as well. So if you have any questions, any comments, um, we'd love to hear from you guys. Thanks. See you next week.